going to pray again uh, briefly as we get started. Am I good? Good? Lord Jesus, you said that we can do nothing in our own strength, and it's your spirit that's been given, that's been sent to reveal you to our hearts. And as we humble ourselves before you in your word this morning, we ask that by your spirit you make Christ more real to us, his glory more evident, uh, his desirability more clear, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I've loved poetry since uh, grade school or so. I had a project once, um, I don't know, maybe fifth or sixth grade. And uh, out of that, I had to read some poetry and got a hold of one of my mom's books. She'd been a a literature major in college, and I was introduced to Percy Shelley. Anybody here know who Percy Shelley? Uh, not, not very many. Okay, well, his day has come and gone, hasn't it? Percy Shelley was a British writer and poet of the early 1800s. In his own day, he was notorious as an atheist. This wasn't a thing in eight, early 1800s Britain. He was an atheist. In his philosophy, he was also uh, immoral, highly immoral, uh, so he was notorious for that. He was famous for his own poetry and also for his second wife, Mary Shelley, the author of the novel Frankenstein. There is much about Shelley's life and works that are not worth imitation, to be sure, but we can afford to give him his due as a poet. So when I got a hold of my mom's book, it was To a Skylark which the, the introductory stanza I still know today just because of that time, or Ode to the West Wind, two of his better-known poems were in that work. And that was part of what introduced me to poetry, sort of as this thing, that this crazy good way of communication. I want to read a poem by Shelley. And actually, if you've got a long memory and have been a line line for a long time, I've read this poem before, and I've used part of the illustration that I'll look at this morning, uh, probably, I don't know, five to ten years ago. So if it sounds familiar to some of you, it's because it is. The poem is Ozymandias, and Ozymandias is a Greek name, and I don't quite understand how the transliteration works, but it's the Greek name for Ramses the Great, the Pharaoh of Egypt. So Shelley composed, it's a very short poem, by the way, so you can relax, not a long one, it's not an ode to the West Wind. <clears throat> Shelley composed this poem after this colossal statue of Ramses the Great was found in the deserts of Egypt. And so as you hear the poem, you've got to understand the setting. Here's here, Ramses the Great, the greatest, arguably, pharaoh of Egypt. More kids, almost 100 kids, lived almost 200 years old and created more monuments, probably had more wealth than most of the other Egypt, uh, Egyptian pharaohs. So He's, he's heard about this colossal statue and the setting in which it was found, and that's the irony, that's the contrast he's intentionally giving to us. So here it is. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. 
and on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. So, so the contrast Shelley is drawing is, here was this guy of immense wealth and power. He was the, the man of his day, led the nation of his day, and he had monuments to his name all over. But here in, in just the desert wastes, here is a memorial to his name and greatness. And if you read it, the, the colossal itself is in pieces, it's broken in pieces, and it's partially covered by the sands. And he doesn't look that big or that important in history, even though he's got these claims his claim to fame and power looks pretty vacuous and empty in light of his long-ago departure and the condition of the monuments he made to his name. So Shelley is mocking, of course, Ramses the Great. He, like all of us, he lived, he drew breath, and despite all his wealth and power, he died. The reality of death was ultimately greater than any boasting of the great king, Ultimately, what boast can any of us make of our own greatness when death is our end? Thomas Gray's famous poem, Elegy, written in a country churchyard, speaks to the same thought this way. Paths of glory lead but to the grave. So he's contemplating life and death in a churchyard, and he's sort of imagining the, the stories of the people that are represented there. But along that line, he says, no matter how high your path is led, no matter how famous, no matter how successful, you all end up right here in the graveyard. No matter how glorious your past has been, this is your future. The grave is your future. Jesus spoke on this same theme. This is Luke 12, verses 15 through 21. He said, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, we might say greed or avarice, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. How many toys we have. He told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. A view of life that sees treasure the temporary possessions of life on the earth as the thing instead of a relationship with the living and true God as the thing. Matthew 16, 26, Jesus said, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? So if you and I, if we could gain the wealth of the world, the popularity, the success, the acclaim, whatever represents success on the earth, if you could gain it all, Jesus says, and lose your soul was that a trade worth making? Was that a value set that's worth having not only in life, but beyond life in death? This is all by way of introduction to Psalm 49. That's where we're going to be this morning. You can turn there if you've got your app or your Bible. 
It's another wisdom psalm, which means this. Friends, as we read the psalm, the psalmist means for us to get a lesson. And it's profound, and it's about not only life and death here, but it's about what comes after. It's really the gospel clearly represented in this psalm, Psalm 49. We're going to look at this in five sections. The introduction is verses 1 through 4. Uh, Why should we fear? The psalmist is going to raise this question in light of everyone's mortality. Why fear other human beings? Verses 5 through 9. All die. That's verses 10 through 12. And really the next section, the notable distinction after death between the redeemed and the ransomed and the unredeemed and the unransomed. And then verses 13 through 15 That's those verses, that's that theme, and then the conclusion is verses 16 through 20. Alan Ross's summary is this. He says, calling the whole world to listen to his wise teachings on life, the sage first warns the rich and powerful that the pomp of this world is fleeting, and those who cherish it will perish like the beasts, and then encourages the righteous that even though death comes to everyone, they will triumph in the end, that there's a distinction that's made in death between the redeemed and the unredeemed. So Psalm 49, the introductory line there is to the choir master. This was written to be sung in the temple. It says a psalm of the sons of Korah, probably better for the sons of Korah, part of the group, the priesthood that would sing this in the temple. So starting there at verses 1 through 4, hear me. So it's a call to listen. Hear this all peoples, Give ear all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. So what I'm saying is important, and you're going to hear it, and I'm going to sing it as well. So like Psalm 47 that we looked at last time, this song is not addressed just to the covenant people of Israel. You remember there, it was the same thing, and it was the call there. Uh, Listen, all peoples in all places at all times, come and join us in praising the living and true God. That was the call to the world in Psalm 47. This is a little different. It's a call to all people in all places at all time, but here it's to embrace wisdom by viewing our lives through the lens of our eventual death. So view the time we have on earth, everyone, all places, all times, it applies to all of us. View the time you've got on earth through the lens of death. What the psalmist is declaring is true, whether we're young or old, rich or poor, successful or unsuccessful, whatever the world thinks of us, this applies to us. Spurgeon says of this song, the low will be encouraged, the high will be warned, the rich will be sobered, the poor consoled, there will be useful lesson for each if they are willing to learn. So there's something here for every one of us. So verse 1, listen up, because what I'm saying applies to you, no matter who you are, or when you live, or when you hear this, or when you read this, what I'm saying the psalmist says applies to you. So listen up. I just want to mention from verse 4, he talks about a proverb He's going to show, he's going to use a contrast, just like uh, Shelley used a contrast. Here's Ramsey's the Great's claim, you know, look on my works, all ye, and despair versus the reality. Well, the psalmist here, he's going to compare the claims of wealth and success in life with the finality of death. 
So the wisdom here is to be gained by looking at some of the temptations, we might say, of the world to frame this, this viewpoint on what success in life looks like, but with the reality that death gives us. So death as the lens, the grave as the lens is what we want to get here. That's the wisdom part. Verses 5 through 9, the psalmist starts with a question, Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. That's his setting. I'm being threatened. I'm being cheated by people who have power and wealth and influence. Verse 7, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. So the psalmist phrases the beginning of his lesson by asking why one human should fear another, seeing that death is for both of them their common end. Verses 5 and 6, he's thinking of people who have power and wealth enough to threaten him. He's being cheated by the wealthy and powerful. But as he considers those threats, he looks past them to where the threats and the boasts of his adversaries end. Whatever they're boasting, whatever cheating, whatever persecution they're making towards him, all of it, he says, is going to end because they will die. They'll die. Verses 7 and 9, no one lives forever, no matter how much money we have, no matter the political influence or the strength of will, no one can ultimately prevent their own death or anyone else's death. There was a gentleman, excuse me, here in the Midwest, this is not very many years ago, uh, extremely wealthy, billionaire, had started a company that was huge, not only in the States, but around the world. He was a billionaire, and he loved his wife, and neither one of them were that old, and his wife contracted cancer, a rare form of cancer that was highly aggressive. So this guy is the wealth of the world. So cost is not an object, not a thing. So he sends his wife here in the States to everybody that says they might have a a cure. And, and then he ships her around the world as well, looking for a cure. So he's got the money of the world to burn. And at the end of the day, she succumbs to her cancer and dies. He, he, he can't, no matter all the money he can spend, he can't prolong her life. She dies of the cancer. Now, he was so busy running a massive company and trying to make sure his wife's life was lengthened or preserved that he didn't look after himself. And so not, after, not long after she died, he found he also had a terminal illness, and he died. And uh, their two children became multi-multi-millionaires. But his wealth couldn't save her life and couldn't save his life. Made no difference at the end of the day. Our psalm says this, we can't save others or ourselves from physical death. Nothing you and I do, everybody who's come before us, they've died. This is a healthy view, by the way. This is not depressing. This is a healthy view, right? We're going to follow everybody that's come before us, okay? Nor can we redeem others or ourselves from the judgment of God that's due our sin. We can't save anyone's life physically, ultimately. And guys, we can't save anyone from the judgment that is due them according to a righteous and holy God. And I love the language here. He says that um, 
the ransom of their life is costly. You can never pay it that he should live forever and never see the pit, see the grave, see the end of this life in death. When wealthy and powerful enemies were threatening the psalmist, he put those threats in the larger context. The boasts and threats of his enemies would cease because they would die. So whatever they're doing in the moment, it will end. Why? Because they're going to go to the grave like everyone else. Matthew 10, 28 says it this way, Don't fear those who can only kill the body, but God who can not only end your life physically, but who can kill the soul in judgment. This doesn't sound like much consolation, does it? You know, anytime you read these verses and you tell people, you quote Jesus, don't fear, don't fear the ones that can only kill your body. It's like, that sounds pretty severe. But that's the take, because everyone's going to die anyway, right? No matter what you think of uh, sort of big picture, everyone dies. So that's the reality we've got to deal with. So the bigger picture is we are very transitory. And so the psalmist wants us to see in the big picture how short life is, but how important it is based on what follows. So think of this from Isaiah 40, verse 6 and 7. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. And when he says flesh, it's humanity, all human life. It's like a blade of grass, or it's like a flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. They don't last very long, do they? The breath of the Lord, he blows, just like a wind goes over the grass or over the flowers. Surely the people are grass. So this exalted passage, this is one of the most famous passages out of Isaiah, chapter 40. And he says, by the way, you don't last long on this earth. God's eternal and has this vaulted language about God and his description above the earth and all that. But that's in, the, that's in this view that your life is really, really short. You know, a blade of grass comes up, and the thought is the wind blows over, and it dries out, and it dies. And he says, that's what your life and mine is like. It's very short. It's very transitory. King David describes it this way, Psalm 39, 5. Behold, you have made, so David loves God, and God loves him. But David says, behold, you've made my days a few handbreaths, a few handbreaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely, all mankind stands as a mere breath. So the, the big picture is not just that we die. It's that, guys, even if you live a long, long time, your life is just a breath that's breathed out, and it's there for a moment. If you think of this on a cold day, and you put one breath out, and you see it there for a while because it's cold, and then it's gone. Well, that's what David says the span of our life is like. So short, so short, especially in light of what follows. So the psalmist of Psalm 49 understands that in the bigger picture, the threats of his enemies are like one blade of grass threatening another blade of grass. Or like one breath that's tentatively, temporarily, briefly in the air threatening another brief, temporary breath in the air. The psalmist puts the temporary threats of the adversaries in the light of the bigger picture. On one hand, death is the great equalizer. Even the most powerful and threatening will fall to its power. Those who threaten others will themselves face the inescapable threat of death. 
Those who threaten others are themselves threatened by something they can't get away from, from death itself. And on the other hand, physical death is not the end of our existence, but another beginning. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, this is kind of your poetry literature morning, I think, in his poem of Psalm of Life said, in part, life is real, life is earnest, and the grave is not its goal. Dust thou art, to dust returnest, was not spoken of the soul. So we are more than our physical bodies. We are, we are certainly embodied creatures. We are created in God's image as physical beings, but we're more than just the body. Because life is ultimately more than our short time on earth, Whatever wealth and power we're given, whatever threats we face, we should live life with a view that takes in more than just this life, and we should refuse the fear of those who can only threaten temporary harm here and now. And if we shouldn't fear those who can only kill us, should we live with what the Bible calls the fear of man? Think of this for just a minute. Probably for most of us, we're not going to be martyred. Most of us aren't going to be murdered. Most of us will probably, if Jesus calls first, we're ready for that. But otherwise, we'll probably live into our 70s or 80s and die maybe at home surrounded by our families. Who knows? Most of us aren't living with, with the fear of death sort of as an overarching theme, but that someone else is going to harm me, take my life. But how many of us live what Scripture calls the fear of man that one blade of grass fears what another blade of grass thinks of it. Whether your blade of grass affirms my blade of grass, whether your breath that's in the air for a moment affirms my breath of air in the moment. Do you know what I mean? That If you say, when, uh, why don't I talk to more people about Christ more often? Most of us, it's this fear of what will they think of me if I say that. See, the psalmist is saying... We needn't fear those who can threaten our bodily life. And if that's the case, guys, should we, threaten, should we feel threatened by people who might not think we're as good as vanilla ice cream or they may not affirm me or my viewpoint? You see where this goes. That Christians should live free not only from the fear of death or what follows, but we should live absolutely free from the thought of someone else may not affirm me. Someone may think I'm not all that great or that good or that I somehow have a wrong concept, why would we care? God wants us to, to put this in perspective. If we needn't fear those who can end our life, why would we fear them for anything else? So, so we're called to live in the fear and the reality of God, not anybody else around us, either on real, material, physical threats, but to a much lesser degree, sort of their approval or disapproval, it's not a thing. Not a thing at all. You can read Isaiah 14, verses 13 through 17. There's a great example there of king of Babylon and death, and also Psalm 37, verses 1 and 2. It's on your study sheet. Verses 10 through 12, uh, everybody's going to die. Don't worry about it. That question's answered. Everybody's going to die. Verse 10, he sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp, man is all his pride and all his acclamation, all his success will not remain. 
He is like the beasts that perish. Now, the psalmist isn't saying we don't have a life value greater than the beast, but he says, as surely as your dog dies, you're going to die. And that the barnyard animals and the birds on the trees and any animal you can think of, at one level we share that same breath of life that they do, and as certainly as they die, we die. It's a given. Verse 10, death comes equally to the wisest of men as well as the most foolish. Wealth can't save us and neither can wisdom. We can live more or less wisely, but not even wisdom can find an escape from death. And this really is the fulfillment of the warning of Genesis 2, 17. Do you remember he told Adam, Adam, if you eat the fruit of that tree, you'll die. Now, did Adam know all that that meant? There's no way. But he knew God had said something and it wasn't good. Don't do that. If you do that, this is what's going to happen. And guys, we've been dying ever since, haven't we? There was a promise. If you do this, you'll die. He died and we've been dying ever since. Psalm 90, verse 10. By the way, this is a huge theme throughout Scripture, isn't it? You can just go on from one passage to another on this theme. Psalm 90, verse 10. The years of our life are 70, sort of an average number when Moses wrote Psalm 90. 70, or even by reason of strength, if you're really healthy and fit, maybe you reach 80, yet their span, so that no matter how long I live, their span is but toil and trouble, life on this planet oil and trouble. They are soon gone. The years fly by. And he says, and we fly away. And our life is over. And our spirits fly away. Verses 11 and 12 graphically depict the end of life. And this is specifically, we'll contrast this in just a minute, specifically for the wicked wealthy, for the guys the psalmist is addressing, the unredeemed, the unransomed who are threatening him. That's who's being addressed here. This group lives as if material possessions in life can not only elevate them and comfort them now, and there's certainly something to be said for that, but also in death, they live and die ignoring God. They live and die ignoring God. It's not mansions and palaces that the wealthy inhabit forever, the psalmist says, but the grave. The wealthy can put their name on estates and buildings like Pharaoh. They can build monuments to their own memory but they won't be alive and living in those places. Rather, their forever home will be the place others lay their bodies in death. I caught just this morning on a morning news show a short clip on the Washington Monument. And it was funny because earlier last week, I was thinking about monuments and names, and I was thinking about the Washington Monument. And there's this video clip of the Washington Monument this morning talking about how it was raised and the challenges of getting it up. Guys... How much does George Washington know about the monument that has his name? Nothing. It's not a thing. He didn't know anything about it. You know, it was, uh, it was 1850s is when it was erected, long after he died. In all these stages, it bears his name. It's to his name, so to speak. But in death, he gets no benefit from that. The monument makes no difference to George Washington. Ramses the Great and the other pharaohs sought immortality through their lavish pyramids and the wealth that surrounded their bodies inside their tombs. And yet even in those gilded settings, their souls were in Sheol, the place of the dead, not the magnificent tombs that they'd constructed. Verse 12 is really a fatal blow to human pride, that phrase, man in his pomp will not remain. And 
this is interesting. Literally, so man in his pomp will not remain. Man in his pride cannot lodge the night. Man in his pride cannot lodge. So it, this would be the thought. I woke up alive in the morning and I checked into the hotel and I didn't last the night. I died. So Isaiah says, you know, you're a blade of grass, you're a flower. Well, here it says, well, you're a guy whose life is contained within one day. You couldn't start in the morning and get through the night. You couldn't even lodge one night. Man with all his wealth, all his power, all his influence ends up like any dog in the field. He dies like livestock, like wild animals in the woods or the fields. Every person, the wealthiest and mightiest, end up impotent in the face of death. What benefit do, does anyone gain from monuments to their names when they have died? Verses 13 through 15 bring out sort of now the fork in the road. So, so far everybody dies, but these verses show that there's a distinction that's made after death between the redeemed and the unredeemed. Verse 13, this is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts. Say law. How many are Chiefs fans today? <laughs> how, how many were Chiefs fans 10 years ago? Or whatever. <laughs> Everybody loves a winner, right? That's the thought here. You're successful and you pat your own back. And the people around you, they pat your back too. Because you have the success that they want also. Like sheep, this is the wealthy, the unredeemed wealthy. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol, for the grave, for the place of the dead. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright, different class of people, shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. Verse 15 is the transition but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, from the grave, for he will receive me. The psalmist is showing there's a distinction that's made here. Verse 13, the confidence that the wealthy have because of their wealth and the approval and praise others give them because of their wealth is a fool's hope. And it's a fool's confidence. It carries no weight beyond the grave. The, the, the greatest amassing of wealth or power or influence has no significance beyond the grave. When thinking of shepherds, Christians usually think of something like Psalm 23. And isn't that a lovely passage? The Lord is my shepherd. You know, I won't, I won't lack. And he's going to lead me through the valley of death. And I won't fear because he's with me. So that's a lovely picture of God as our shepherd. But check out what the psalmist says. Verse 14, the psalmist says of the foolish that death is their shepherd. Death itself is their shepherd. It's death that will lead them out of life to the grave where their bodies will deteriorate to dust. So for this group of people, they're going to be led by a shepherd they don't want to follow to a place they don't want to go. A shepherd you and I don't want to follow to a place we don't want to end up. That's the thought. Verse 15, in contrast, the psalmist says he'll be ransomed and God himself will receive him. This is the language of new life and resurrection. This, this leads specifically into the gospel message itself. 
The psalmist has a hope that goes beyond death and the grave to life in God's presence. You know, throughout the Old Testament, you're primarily dealing with Israel in a covenant that has to do with in the land of promise and a conditional covenant in their relationship with God. And so you don't see the language, the clear language of the gospel throughout the Old Testament the way you do in the New. But it's there, and life after death and resurrection life is in the Old Testament. And this is one of those places. The psalmist says, I know that God himself will receive me after my death. Death for me is not the end, either of life or of hope. God himself will receive me. Uh, Psalm 103, verse 4, God redeems my life from the pit. The grave is not the end. God's going to redeem me even from death. And since Jesus' resurrection from the grave, Christians live with an even greater clarity of our future beyond death and grave. Paul says it this way in Philippians 1.23. You know, he's, he's telling them, hey, I love you guys, love to be around for you on one hand, but I'm thinking about death also. And he says, really, I would rather die, I'd rather depart and be with Christ, die. Death is better because I'll go and I'll be with Christ, and that's the ultimate. So if I could make a choice, that's what I'd choose. 2 Corinthians 5, similar thought. Paul there says, we're of good courage. We'd rather be away from the body. Guys, that's dead. Body's in the grave. I've died. I'd rather that because then I would be present with the Lord. Same thought from Psalm 49. Death for me is not the end. God will receive me. And Christians have that in great clarity because Jesus has come He's died for the sins of the world. He was buried. He raised for our justification. And that's the gospel as we know it. But it's seen in Psalm 49 as well. The psalmist knew, I'll be, re- I'll be ransomed, I'll be redeemed, and I'll be received by God himself. Uh, At death, our bodies may be laid to rest in the grave, but our spirits return to God who gave them, Ecclesiastes 12, 7. So all of us are going to die, and uh, God willing... People who know us and love us are going to lay our bodies in the ground. We're we're going to, the the spirit returns to God, the body goes to the ground. But at some future time, and it might not be long, friends, from now, those ransomed and redeemed spirits will be given immortal resurrection bodies at what 1 Thessalonians 4 calls the rapture or the appearing of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15 is that same theme, that Jesus descends with a shout, the trumpet, the archangel, And it says, the dead in Christ rise first. So if I die today, my spirit goes back to God who gave it. My body's still in the ground. But a day perhaps not long away, Jesus calls and the dead in Christ rise first. 1 Thessalonians 4 4 says, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them and will always be with the Lord. Physical resurrection, not just the spirit's presence with God in heaven, but physical resurrection. That's the future of all the redeemed of all ages. 1 Corinthians 15 says that those bodies that end in death are like seeds planted in the ground. They're perishable, they're mortal, they're weak. But in resurrection, at Jesus appearing, they're imperishable and glorious. They're like Jesus' own. So for us, not only is the grave not the end, but guys, from the grave, everything gets better. So whatever our experience of life is here, whatever your best moment, whatever your best year, your highest success, whatever, that will pale compared to where we're going and what we're heading to. Like the psalmist, we live with this certainty of life and glorious resurrection after these bodies wear out because we've been redeemed in Christ. We've been ransomed through Jesus' sacrificial death, burial, 
and resurrection. That's the message of 1 Timothy 2. There's one God. No matter how many you think there are, there's one. There's one God. So he's up here, let's say, and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And Christ Jesus, the man Christ Jesus, is the one that's ransomed us. So here's God, and here's us, and Paul says here in 1 Timothy, and there's only one way you and I get from here mere mortality to God to be received in heaven, and it's through the ransom Jesus has paid on our behalf. It's the redemption that we have in Christ. We're redeemed in Christ or we're unredeemed. We're ransomed through Christ or we're unransomed. Jesus did what no man, verse 7, no mere mortal could do. He ransomed us from sin. He gave to God the price of redemption so that we could live forever. So for us, distinction in shepherds. Instead of being shepherded to death by death, we're shepherded in life to life by Jesus, the Lord of life. We're really choosing our shepherd. We're really choosing who we follow. And whoever we choose and whoever we follow, that's where we're going. Death can only take us to death, and Jesus can only take us to life. For us, death holds no sting because death is not the end, 1 Corinthians 15, 55. Uh, but for the unransomed, the unredeemed, those who trust in themselves but not in Christ, not only is physical death a certainty, but eternal death is a certainty. This is Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. So the ransomed and the redeemed say, we're going to be received by God, and we're going to get new resurrection bodies. We'll be just like Christ. We'll be fit for Christ forever. But what about the unredeemed? What about those? What about uh, people like that Pharaoh who have the wealth of the world, but they die. We know their end was the grave. Is that it? John the Apostle writes, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. This would be Jesus. And I saw the dead, great and small. We might add uh, small and great, wise and foolish, rich and poor. You can insert the language of Psalm 49 there. Standing before the throne and books were opened, then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead, qualitatively, this describes them. They're dead. They're spiritually dead. They're not connected to God through faith in Christ. The dead were judged by what was written in the books. They're not, they're not judged on the merits of Christ. They're judged on themselves and their merits and their works. They're judged according to what they had done. So what about all the dead of all the ages? Well, the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades, the grave and the place of the dead, gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. The dead die. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire, the second eternal death. Death is their shepherd in life, at the grave, and forever. They have followed death to its ultimate conclusion. The real question for us always is this, guys. Have we passed out of death into life? What shepherd are we following? John 5, 24 we who have heard Jesus call and have believed in Him, Jesus says we've passed out of the sphere of death. And even though these bodies are still going to die, we're already in the sphere of life. 
because we're in Christ and Christ is in us. Because Christ has paid our ransom, Christ has redeemed us, even now we have the life of Christ and we're described as living in life right now. We've already passed out of death into life, but that's only true through faith in Christ. There's one God, there's one mediator. You know, it's only Jesus says, you know, I'm the way and the truth and the life. You either come to the Father through me or you don't come. You abide in death or you're transferred out of death into life only through faith in Christ. The conclusion, this is verses 16 through 20. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he'll carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. You've heard the joke about the one who dies with the most toy wins. It's a lie. It's an absolute lie. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see the light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, and understanding here is connection to the living and true God who gave us life and breath. Man in his pomp and his pride without understanding is like a beast that perishes. You're just like one of the dumb animals on the earth. You've never connected with your creator. The final warning, a conclusion to live life wisely. Don't set our hopes on wealth or power, on personal pride or acclaim, because that kind of living leaves us as dull as a brute beast. The pride of life is a fool's life. It's a short-term boast that ends suddenly at death. If God blesses us with wealth, and guys, we don't say, and the Bible certainly doesn't teach, that wealth is inherently a bad thing, that influence, that success are bad. We aspire to be wealthy in all the right ways. Paul talks about this in 1 Timothy 6. Wealth is not the deal, is it? It's the heart. It's what's, what is the heart set on. So Paul says this to those who have worldly wealth. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them, tell them, warn them, don't be haughty because you've got some stuff. Uh, don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. One of the Proverbs says money, money sprouts wings and it flies away. Uh, but fix your hope on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. All of the stuff you and I have ever enjoyed, it's come from God. And he's generous and he's glad to give it. He gives us all good things to enjoy. Uh, tell them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. We've received God's benevolence. We should channel that benevolence through to others. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So you hold on to wealth here, it just rots. You spend it as a steward on others in God's name and Christ's cause, and you end up with treasure in heaven as Christ's steward, temporarily overseeing some of his stuff. Ramses the Great had the wealth of the world. And uh, I've been reading archaeological journals and books for a few decades at least, and this story is funny. And... and uh, Shelley only, only got it about half right. Ramses the Great, the most powerful man on the earth in his day. But do you know what happened to him after death? 
So some point after he died and was buried in his tomb in his monument, uh, he, along with others who had been similarly buried, their bodies were taken out of their tombs. It was, wasn't just him, it was many. Because, apparently because people were afraid they were going to be looted or they knew his grave was going to be looted. So someone apparently with a good motive towards Ramses and people like him, they took their bodies and they hid them. We don't even know when. But in the 1800s, archaeologists in Egypt, they, there's a cave and there's what I would call not just a crack but kind of like a crevasse and guys stacked up like cordwood in this cave is Ramses the Great and all these others like him. It had great wealth in life and his body with all these other sarcophagi, they're just stacked in a pile in a corner of a cave in Egypt. So that sounds rather ignominious to the guy who said, look on all my works, ye mighty, and despair. But I think it gets worse because then they take his body. He was almost 100 years old. He's mummified. He's not looking at his best. And they lay him in the museum in Cairo so that the poor as well as the rich today can go look at Ramses the Great, the great Ozymandias, and look at him in this shriveled estate. He doesn't sound like I would look at his stuff and despair. That was the end of his life. That's what happened to him after life as well. Or think of Percy Shelley. He had wealth and fame. He had the congratulations of the world for his great gift and abilities. And he left some truly lovely poetry behind. I mean, I, I still read these occasionally. It's great poetry. But <clears throat> he not only lived poorly and immorally, but he died young. He was 29 years old when he drowned right off the coast of Italy. He and another fellow that were out there. And friends, if he died as he lived, his place is in the grave and his future is eternal death. I never presume to know how someone died, right? I don't know. Did they repent in final moments? Did they trust Christ? I have no idea. But if he died as he lived, he chose death as his shepherd in life and in death. And he will face Christ, not among the redeemed and the ransomed, but at Revelation 20, when the dead and the grave and Sheol all gives up the dead and faces Christ as judge, not as redeemer. Are we living in the light of the wisdom of Psalm 49? Do we refuse to make others somehow so important that we're taking our cues from them? Their threats or their congratulations? Blades of grass like ourselves. Knowing that our greatest threat has been conquered in Christ, are we living fearlessly before merely mortal threats, threats in this lifetime? They can certainly loom and appear very significant when we're confronted with them, but the psalmist is telling them in the big picture, they're not. They're inconsequential. Do our abilities and assets, our wealth and successes lead us to humility, thanksgiving and generosity, or pride and vanity? the wealth that God gives us, the success, whatever that looks like. What heritage will we leave behind? Now, probably most of us won't have buildings with our name on it, right? No monuments probably for most of us. But what will the heritage we leave behind to children, grandchildren, friends, and others be based on the visible priorities of our lives? What will that look like? So Ramsey's the Great, look on my works, you mighty in despair. That's his heritage. And then it's a joke because of what happens to his body. 
But what's the heritage we leave behind? What's the message? What's the wisdom for life that we live behind? Like the psalmist is painting here in Psalm 49. What will others take from our life? Is our life a wisdom song, so to speak? Can they see what the psalmist wants us to see here because of our interaction with them? Is that the way we're living? And has that prepared us for dying? Well, if you would uh, stand, I want to read together from John 10. I love the imagery of the shepherd in this song because it's clear. I'm following someone and they're taking me someplace. Who's my shepherd and where am I going? Let's read this. This is, uh, this is parsed from John 10. Let's read that together. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I foam, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they'll never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. 